Would you pray with me? Father, every time that we undertake to open the scriptures, your holy word, we feel inadequate. And how much more uh, inadequate when we face suffering and we're in a situation that's not home like I am right now. And so I pray for your anointing for this word, that I would be faithful to your scriptures, that I would be filled with your Holy Spirit, that you would grant me words that would be strengthening to the church and an encouragement to this body, and that you would do things here in marriages and in parenting and in friendships and in bodies and in minds that people do not expect to be done but are good. So draw near and exceedingly and abundantly beyond everything I can ask, work here for the glory of Christ, I pray in his name. Amen. I listened to the same four messages that probably most of you listened to in the last four weeks, namely the ones that were preached here. At the village from uh, Bo and Josh, I went online and listened to them so that I would know what you were being taught. And I came away from those messages with the very clear, strong conviction that you don't need me here. Um, You're being very well shepherded through this, uh, through Matt's suffering and your suffering. And so as I reflected on, so if they don't need me to go do this, if they've got shepherds of their own who are doing a good job in caring for the people and telling them what they need to hear, so what's uh, what's left for me to do? And uh, there are two things that, that I want to do. The first is very brief, namely to say out loud that I love Matt Chandler. And I think I speak for thousands that are beyond this church. And so just know that my presence here is a, a statement about my affection for your pastor, one of your pastors. Um, so I told him that he was sitting right over there last night and, and, uh, and I said that to him. The second thing is I, I am asked to preach and so I will. And as I reflected on what I might do that... Other pastors might be slower to do. It's this. Since I come from outside and sort of represent the the bigger picture of the impact of the ministry of the village, it might be good for me to bring a bigger picture to bear on the issue of suffering. I mean, there are two things that you do when somebody's suffering. The first thing is you hug a lot. And you don't talk a lot. You just hug a lot. You're just there. That's the first and and very, very crucial thing to do. But, you know, if you lived any length of time and suffered much or thought much about it, you have to have a place to stand when you're hugging. If the ground starts to give way underneath, all the hugging in the world doesn't help. Hugging can get very thin and very shallow and very sentimental and... It doesn't work over the long haul only to hug. There's got to be a place to stand. I mean, a solid, biblical, rock, solid ground. And, 
And one of the ways the Bible gives that is by putting suffering, Matt's, yours, mine, the globe's, in a, in a global context. And that's what I'm going to do. So there's a passage of Scripture that does this. I, don't, I didn't decide that this should be done. God decided that this should be done, and he put it in his book. And so if you would like to look at it with me, it's Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 25. Romans 8. 18 to 25. One of my favorite passages. I think Romans is the greatest book in the Bible. I think Romans 8 is the greatest chapter in the greatest book in the Bible. I won't argue that this is the greatest paragraph in the greatest chapter in the greatest book in the Bible, but it comes close. So I'm going to read verses 18 to 25 with you of Romans chapter 8. And the question you should be asking as you read it, is how does the Apostle Paul help me suffer well by putting suffering in in a global, eternal, even universal context? You know, we often ask the question, okay, if I'm going to suffer, what's the meaning of my suffering right now in this moment? What might it do for me in this moment to help me or whatever and, and I'm, I'm stepping back from that question to the much bigger question of why is it in the world? Why, why is this history of ours a conveyor belt of corpses? Why, why is yesterday we celebrated, we marked the fifth anniversary of the tsunami? What, 250,000 folks in a few hours gone There's a tsunami every five days. This is the world, and and Paul knows that, and God knows that, and and they're not silent about that. And we don't have to be silent, and I'm not going to be silent about it, because that's what this paragraph is about. Okay, So that's what you're listening for, is how are you going to help me, us, church, suffer, help Matt suffer, By putting it in a global context. So let's read it. This is verse 18 of Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing for the glory with the glory that will be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. But because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit. Grown inwardly as we wait for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The verse just preceding this paragraph, verse 17, says to you Christians, 
those who believe in Christ, trust Jesus as your Lord and embrace him as your treasure in life above all treasures, that you are going to inherit with Jesus Christ whatever he inherits. You're going to inherit the universe. It's going to be yours. This is your universe. Provided you suffer with him. You see that in verse 17? Provided we suffer with him, we will be glorified with him. So, having said that the pathway to your glory beyond this life, the pathway to your glory is suffering. Verse 17. Now verses 18 to 25 tell you it's worth it. That's the point. And it's, it, it's worth it. And the way he shows you it's worth it is by putting it in this creation-oriented global context. And it is so crucial that you have a head and a heart that can embrace this teaching because you will bail on Christianity in the moment of your suffering if you don't. I mean, how many people, they lose a child, they get cancer, mom gets killed in a car wreck, they lose their job, marriage breaks up, and they look up and they say, if that's the way you treat these years of faithfulness, I'm out of here. No, nobody suffers more than the most devoted disciples. I mean, Paul was just a lifetime of suffering. Jesus, a lifetime of of suffering. I was reading my devotions back here in the green room just to get my heart ready from the end of the Gospel of John. <clears throat> and he says to, to, to Peter, uh, when you are old, I'm 63, so I'm taking this for myself. When you are old, they will take you by the hands and guide you where you do not want to go. This he said in order to show him by what death he would glorify God. God's got a death plan for you, Peter, like being crucified upside down. And I'm giving you a hint that it's coming. You're going to bail on that unless you have a theology, unless you have a, a biblical perspective from this paragraph and others that help you come to terms with why is this world the way it is? Not just Matt. Matt's one of millions. This church is one of hundreds where leaders suffer and one of millions probably around the world where everybody suffers at some time or another. So what I want to do is it gives you that bigger picture. So here's the way we do it. We're going to walk through the text once by pointing out three ways that Paul puts our suffering in a global context and gives meaning to it. And and then we'll walk through it again and look at six promises that are given to us in that global context so that we won't bail out on the faith in view of the fact that God is so unbelievably realistic with us about telling us uh, it isn't going to get better in this life. Number one, from the first pass through, he says, the whole creation groans. Mark, mark the 
creation. It's the spatial, global, universal scope of the thing that clobbers me here. So a couple of verses. Verse 22. We know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth. So whole creation groaning. Picture it. Verse 21. The creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption. So for now, anyway, till that freedom is coming, the way he describes creation is slavery or bondage to corruption, decay, breaking down. Things go wrong. Entropy, just things break. Bodies break, minds break, marriages break. Things are corrupt. Verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility. There's another word. You got futility, you got corruption, you got groaning, you got suffering. All these words Paul is piling up to describe the whole creation. So that's, that's number one. The first way he puts suffering in a global context is by using this term, whole creation, whole creation, 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 four times to say, there is no place in this universe where there is not groaning if there were somebody there to groan. Number two, it's not just spatially or geographically extensive. It's the whole history. Look at these time references. Verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is being revealed. What is that referring to? This present time. Well, maybe we can get an idea by looking at the temporal references in 20 and 21. Look at 20. Verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility. So it happened. This thing we see, this world, this suffering, this Decay, this corruption, this bondage, this groaning happened in the past. There was a point where it happened. And then look at verse 21, the future. The creation itself will be set free. So there's a point in the future coming where it won't look like this anymore. It won't be devastation. It won't be disease. It won't be mental illness. It won't be depression. It won't be brain tumors anymore. That will be over. So there's coming a point where that this time, this present time stops. So from whenever that beginning was, and we'll get there, that beginning, it started and it ends out there at the second coming. And this is the present time where we live. Matt lives. This church lives. Everybody lives. So that's number two. All creation, number one. All of history, number two. Now, number three is kind of a qualification of number two because not quite all of history. (laughs) If it had a beginning, then there was something on the other side back here. I don't know how long that was where it wasn't this way. And over here, it's this horrible, groaning, corrupt, slavery, suffering way. And over there, it wasn't. And what was that? When did that happen? What, what went wrong? So the third thing Paul does here is tell us what happened. 
Now, there's several places in the book of Romans where he talks about this, like chapter 5 in particular. But here, let's look at verse 20. And then I'll give you the general point. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Who is that? Who did that subjecting? You got three candidates, it seems to me. Adam, Satan, God. Because we know what he's talking about. He's talking about Genesis 3. Where everything came down. Beautiful, glorious, everything is good. God looks at his creation and said, very good, very good. No groaning, no corruption, no futility, no suffering, very good. And after chapter 3, this. This disease, these tornadoes, these floods, these epidemics. This sin, this wickedness, this wars. That's after. So who did that? Well, you can rule two of those out by the little phrase at the end of the verse. In hope. Let's try Adam. Adam subjected the world to futility in hope. He didn't. That was not his plan at all. Or Eve's. They weren't calculating a glorious future on the other side where this creation would be set free. No, no, no. That wasn't their idea. And try Satan. That doesn't work either. He didn't do this tempting. He didn't try to bring the whole thing down in hope. One person did it in hope. God did it in hope. So my third point here is that what this text teaches is God... Didn't just ordain some kind of natural law. He judicially sentenced the world to what it is today. It was a judgment on the world in response to sin. And I admit that you have to have. And I'm calling you to this. It takes years sometimes to get people to this. You have to have a very high view of God's. Holiness and justice and glory and deservingness and worth and a very clear view of the outrage and the horror of sin and rebellion against that in order to keep this world from looking like an overreaction to Adam and Eve. Most people, if they try to come to terms with the problem of suffering this way, will say, that's an overreaction. <laughs> because it, it just doesn't make any sense if you don't know how great God is. It doesn't make any sense if God is not the most important reality in the universe. So that if you put him in the scales and six billion people in the scales, it goes like this. They're like dust, Isaiah 40 says. The nations are like 
drippings from a bucket. They're like dust in the scales. Until God is that central for you and that massive for you, God's response to sin makes no sense. It's simply an overreaction. It's like a, a judge telling a guy who stole a loaf of bread, your head's coming off. And everybody's, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Maybe a fine. Maybe a fine, but not, not this world. Paul says, God subjected the creation to futility. Not because we wanted it, but because it was right. To do this to the creation that had rebelled against him. And this room right now is filled with rebellion against God. Starting right here. And all I mean by that is I don't love God at this very moment the way I ought to love God. I love him. But the Bible says, John Piper, love God with all your heart, all your strength, all your mind, all your soul, 100% all the time. How you doing? Bad. That's how you're doing. And therefore, not only is, is Adam and Eve there at the beginning with their, we want to do it our way. We'll eat what we want to eat. And you can just get out of our face with your rules. We do the same thing. Just more sophisticated, more subtle sometimes. This world seeds with rebellion against God in nice, squeaky, clean suburban forms and then gross, difficult criminal forms and all kinds of ways. And it is not an overreaction for God to say, this world will stay what it is till my son comes and it will be experienced as pain and suffering and groaning and corruption and bondage to decay because that's how serious sin is. The meaning, the ultimate global meaning of all suffering is that sin is ghastly. Sin is ghastly. Every time you look at some horrific suffering, and there is suffering that is so horrific, you faint when you see it. You should think that's how serious sin is. In one of the sermons I listened to, Bo, you may remember this was on the 13th of December, Bo, and I wrote this quote down, um, said, physical evil is rooted in spiritual evil. Brain tumors exist because of my rebellion against God, end quote. He didn't say brain tumors exist because of Matt's rebellion against God. Very important. He said because of mine. And he didn't mean when he said because of mine, I did a bad thing two years ago and, and God zapped Matt for it. He didn't mean that. He meant something like Romans 8. He was, he was touching on what I'm trying to unpack here. Namely, our sin is the corporate reality from Adam and Eve until we're perfected at the last day. Our sin is the corporate reality that is being documented as horrible by all disease. All disease in the world, all tornadoes and floods and epidemics in the world is a dramatic statement from the judge of the universe. That's how horrific sin is. That's what he meant. And that's right. 
So instead of getting in God's face with your fist when you suffer, you should be broken by all suffering to say, Instead of my saying what you should say, let me say what Jesus said. Do you remember the time in Luke 13 where they came to Jesus and said, Hey, the tower fell on 18 people and killed them. They were just standing there. And the tower of Siloam fell on them and killed them. What about it? And Jesus said, Do you think that those people... We're any worse sinners than the rest of the people in Jerusalem. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Okay. (gasps) That's not what I asked. I wanted an explanation for the suffering. I want you to tell me I'm going to die. And you said, well, that's what you need to be told. You should have been under the tower. And so should I. I should be the one with the brain tumor. I should be dead a thousand times today. That I'm breathing at 63 after my teenage years is... (laughs) So the point, and I'm I'm ending this first half now. We shift over to promises. The point is God has put, in Romans 8, put suffering in a global perspective so that we have some sense. I'm not saying all the problems are solved. I'm just saying God has not left us without some sense of why the world is the way it is, including our own suffering. Let's shift over. um, Maybe one more verse before I shift over. Verse 23. Not only this, that is not only all this global suffering, of creation, but also we ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves. Isn't that amazing? Why, why does he talk like that? Why all this we ourselves, even we, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we ourselves groan within ourselves. Why that stress on even us, even us, even us? And the reason is because when the gospel comes to us, it comes with spec good news your sins are forgiven because of Christ righteousness is provided that you could never live out in Christ by faith alone you can be justified by faith alone you can have eternal life by faith alone you can have fellowship with the living God this is glorious news and the natural response of us would be to say yes and all my suffering is gone in Christ Because he's my curse. The curse is lifted. As far as the curse is found, he came to bear my load. And and verse 23 is there to say, no. No. Even we, even we who have the Holy Spirit, even we who are united to Jesus, even we whose sins are forgiven, even we who will have eternal life, Even we who are totally justified, even we who are so loved by God, He works absolutely everything for our good. Even we groan waiting for the redemption of this thing. This old wrinkled, glasses needing, balding, aching thing called body. Even we, 
That's the point of verse 23, because so many people, I mean, you can, the, the prosperity gospel, the name it and claim it folks, that they, they don't get it that the already of the kingdom doesn't include everything. We've got to wait. Verse 23 is we're going to wait with patience. Verse 25. Let me shift gears now for you. That's the, that's the global context that, that provides a tremendous place to stand. All right, God's not out of control. He's got a plan. He knows what he's doing. This all has some judicial, just sense about it. You got some promises for us, God. You got something to help us. Here in this, if, we, if you've appointed for us to live here, you're going to say something helpful to us about what you're up to. And there are six magnificent promises, and I'll, I'll move through them quickly. Number one, God promises that after this time, this present time, our lives and this history, after this, we are going to see an all satisfying beauty. Verse 18, for I consider that the suffering of this present time, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory, mark that word, that will be revealed to us. All beautiful, overwhelming, powerful greatness out there, glory will be revealed to me. I wonder if that even lands on you with good news. I mean, if that, if, that, if that makes you say, yes, it's worth it. Yes, it's worth it. Let me try to help. Why do human beings all over the world want to see greatness? Not everybody defines it the same way. They want to go to big, tall mountains. I like to go to the Alps. Or the Himalayas, or the Rockies, or canyons, the Grand Canyon, or oceans. Take an ocean cruise through some deep fjord in Norway and take pictures and make a book and put it on your coffee table so you can feel some of the greatness when you get home. Why do we do that? Or if you're a teenager, you just do it with movies, right? Avatar. Why, why, are they, why, why is there Lord of the Rings? Why, why are there these huge multi-million dollar take ten years to make them cinematic productions why? it's because there's something in here that wants bigness that wants greatness wants to see it wants to get drawn into it and, and the meaning of that is God this is, the, this is God's form written this is made for God this longing inside this aching I want greatness I want to see greatness I want to be among greatness I want to be surrounded by something great without being crushed and destroyed by it that's all about the image of God in you so this text is saying that's coming and it's coming in a way that will absolutely blow you away. And the best statement of it is in Jesus' prayer in John 17. It goes like this. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. Isn't that an amazing prayer? 
I would be absolutely vain to pray that. I want this whole church able to see my glory. But when Jesus says it, it's love because he is the most glorious being in the universe. We all like to be around great sports people or great scientists or great intellects or great whatever. We love greatness. And there isn't any human greatness compared to Jesus. So the first promise we have in verse 18 is glory, namely the glory of Christ, will be revealed to you. Number two. I don't know if you get frustrated like I do. You hear promises like that and you say, I know that I'm supposed to be profoundly, fully, deeply satisfied with that promise But I don't even have the power to be satisfied with my birthday for a day and a half. I mean, my capacities for enjoyment have been so stunted. Maybe my parents never celebrated, never rejoiced in anything, never approved, never modeled for me any kind of capacities to enjoy. It was just negative and anger and brokenness. And and here I'm given this promise and I'm supposed to be excited and satisfied with what's coming my way to see glory. So we're not left with our present capacities. So the second promise is verse 19. For the anxious longing of creation waits with waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. What does that mean? Now, verse 18 says the, the glory is going to be revealed to us. Verse 19 says we're going to be revealed. What does that mean? Are you ready? To be revealed? What what does that mean? I think it means you don't look like sons of God now. You look like Texans. (laughs) Really ordinary human beings. What? You don't... I mean, if if somebody walked in there and said, look at the sons of God. They're just ordinary people. They dress like everybody else. They get sick like everybody else. They die like everybody else. What's with this sons of God stuff? Sons of God are supposed to be titans. You will be. That's what it means. You're right now walking through Texas as sons of God incognito. And hopefully, hopefully there's enough of God in here that it's coming out in beautiful ways. People have to get to know you a little bit, to get to know you and see, oh, there's a connection with deity here. There's some love here. There's some worship here. There's some kindness here. There's some patience here. There's some gentleness here. There's fruit here that I can't explain any other way than connection. And so maybe I'm dealing with a son or a daughter of God here. There will be no question in those days. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 13? The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And picture yourself looking at me now, okay? I'm, I'm totally ordinary, right? Hair's falling out, five feet eight, used to be five feet nine. <laughs> and one day you will look at me and I, my countenance will be so bright you won't be able to look at me. It will be like the sun. Which means you have to be changed as well. So we can look at each other. 
You you have to have capacities for the glory of Christ and capacities for my glory and I for your glory so that in this world that's coming, we can enjoy one another because we don't have the capacities right now to enjoy what we're promised. We enjoy them a little bit, but there's coming a day when all of you broken people who grew up in homes that were totally uh, ill-equipped to help you get ready to enjoy beauty, enjoy greatness, enjoy righteousness, just enjoy period... That'll all be fixed. And you will have emotional capacities in you that will send you flying because of what you will see in Christ mainly and reflected from him in each other. We will be revealed. That's number two. Here's number three. The ultimate design of this futility that we're in right now is hope. Verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, in hope. So whenever you feel overwhelmed by the, the futility of whatever, my, my job seems futile, my, my marriage isn't going where I thought it would go, my kids haven't turned out the way I thought they would turn out, my body is now given out on me, this whole thing seems so futile. Don't let those two words go at the end. We're here in hope. We've been forgiven. We've been accepted. We've been loved. We've been justified. We've been promised eternal life. But right now, so much futility. So much breaks. So much goes wrong. Even when you're walking in obedience. Obedience. I don't have the slightest doubt that Matt Chandler is smack dab in the center of God's will for his life right here. And 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 he gets this. And so will you. One form or another. Maybe I better put in a little princess here just to make crystal clear what I'm assuming when I quoted Bo back there. Um, When it says that. Christ became a curse for us in Galatians 3.13. You might think, well, then the curse is lifted and we shouldn't die because death was what God promised in response to sin. And my sins have been covered by Jesus and therefore I don't die. So what's with death? And my answer to that really good, difficult question is. My death and my suffering, your death as a Christian and your suffering as a Christian is no longer God's curse. God is no longer punishing. God is no longer in wrath. God is no longer opposed to you. God is 100% for everyone who is in Christ by faith alone. 100%. Not 99.9% and 0.1% he's mad at you. And he'll give you a disease with that point one. That's not the way to think. In Christ Jesus, we are justified, accepted, forgiven, loved, so that God never has wrath for us. He never is punitive. He is only purifying. So death becomes, suffering becomes, purifying and passage way onto glory. When you feel yourself suffering, Matt feels this thing. It has to deal now, start, what, starting Tuesday with this treatment. And how sick will he get? We pray not. 
But if he does, how, how easy it is to think, God, God's cursing me. I had a man come up to me one New Year's Eve when his baby had just died and his wife was holding him there in the hospital room and I walked in, prayed with him, cried with him, went out in the hall. He said, can I just ask you a question? Is it possible for a family to be cursed? So much stuff had happened. So that parenthesis right there is to clarify that dying was originally given by God on the earth as a curse. Now, what I'm saying is that in Christ, he pulls the stinger out of that thing. Pulls the stinger out of it. And it is no longer curse. It is now doorway to paradise. And the suffering becomes used by God in fatherly care and discipline to purify. Hebrews 12. I hope you can make that distinction in your own experience and for Matt. Promise number four. We're almost done. All creation, not just the children of God, will be freed from this misery in which the creation presently finds itself. Verse 21. The creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This is amazing. The creation itself will be freed and brought into your glory. Don't think because this world, this creation, this universe is so big. I was made for it. You weren't. It was made for you. God will first redeem his children, give them new bodies New emotions, new capacities for sensing pleasures a thousand times greater than the biggest sexual pleasure you've ever thought possible. And then he will make the world new in a suitable way to make us belong there. It doesn't work the other way around. Like he's got this new world. And now what what can I do with my humans to make this work? No, no, no. You are his focus. And the creation is going to come into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That is staggering. Especially when you think of the Hubble telescope and what it's delivering to us and what's out there for us. It will be our playground. What God has in plan for you, believers, is coming very soon. Very soon. And... It's beyond anything you can dream. I get really mad when I hear people say, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. And I want to say, nobody has ever been too heavenly minded. You can be of no earthly good, that's for sure. But it's not because you're too heavenly minded. When you have that kind of hope... Second Peter says, you purify yourself as he is pure and you become dangerous, radical, holy, loving, self-sacrificing servants on the planet until it comes. Because you've got nothing to lose. The people that are wasting their lives, the people that are bad for this world are the people who think because they don't believe in heaven, they don't believe in the age to come, they don't believe in a new heaven and a new earth, they've got to have it now and it's called retirement. 
or it's called iPods or it's called 52 inch screen or it's called surround sound or it's called new car or it's called figures and bodybuilding and whatever your idol happens to be to make heaven come now. Please come now, heaven, because I don't believe you exist out there. But if you believe it's out there, if you really are sold on this picture of the future, you will become so humble, so sacrificial. So you will go to the hardest places in the world, hardest places in Texas, hardest relationships in this church. And you'll throw yourself into that mess for healing and for redemption and for service because you've got an inheritance coming. That was number four. Here's number five. And we'll tick these off real fast. Number five. The miseries of the universe are not death throes, but birth pangs. Look at that. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Paul looks out at volcanoes and tsunamis and cancer and tumors and groaning and screaming and pain everywhere. And he says, like a mom in labor. If you're in the hospital and you hear a scream across the hall, it makes a huge difference whether you know you're in the maternity unit or the oncology unit. And you might say, no, it doesn't really, because pain is pain. Well, that's true in one sense. Pain is pain. But every mom and every dying cancer patient knows pain is not just pain. There's pain that brings life and there's pain that issues in death. And Paul is looking at the whole world here in verse 22. And he's saying, I'll give you an interpretation of what I see. Birth pangs. God is going somewhere with this. God is going to bring a new heavens and a new earth. And this present suffering, he says, is like a woman in labor. And what she's going to give birth to is that. That's what he says. And here's the catcher. This is true. All of your sufferings, including your death, is birth pangs. You're going right into life. That's number five. And the last one, number six, God cares about your body big time. It may not feel like it in times of terrible pain. And I haven't known a lot in my life, so I'd rather read to you stories of people who've walked through much deeper waters than I have and how they bore witness to the faithfulness of God and how he met them in it. But... I have to testify to what I see. Verse 23. Not only this, but we ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. When I came to Bethlehem 30 years ago, 1980, summer of 1980. I think it was about the fourth or fifth sermon that I preached to my new flock, about 300 folks. I preached a sermon called Christ and Cancer. And I took it from that verse right there, verse 23, which says, We groan waiting for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. And I just said, folks, and I'm saying this to you now for, for how you should think about each other. 
I just I'm preaching this sermon on Christ and cancer so that you will know what to expect when I walk into the hospital room and you've been told by the doctor hard news. Will my pastor say, you know, if you had no faith, you wouldn't be here. Or will he say, I'm with you in your groaning as long as it takes to help you keep the faith, trust Jesus and need to be healed by his miracle now. Or enter into the final healing in the age to come. I'm with you. And you're groaning. And I'm going to groan with you. I'm going to weep with those who weep. And I just want you to know. Before you get cancer. That's what I think about you. So let me close with a couple of practical words to you as a church. Number one. Pray for Matt's healing. You know. I'm a, I'm a lover of the sovereignty of God. I believe God rules everything. Governs everything. I, I don't know how I could find meaning in in the horrors of of my and others' lives if I didn't believe God had purposes in what he was doing. Some people take that to an extreme and say, so Matt's got cancer, let's just, that's that. Okay, sirrah, sirrah, God is sovereign, deal with it. Instead of saying, how about we gather together, fast, pray, and ask God to take it away. And I'm saying, that's no compromise of the sovereignty of God. Like, say, God, heal him. So that's what I'm praying. And I invite you to pray that way. I told Matt yesterday, I'm going to say that to you. And I said, now here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to say, I'm going to invite your church now that you've had the thing out. And they're going to go in there and try to kill everything else that shouldn't be there. And and uh, we'd like you to be around 40 years. And so I'm going to tell the people that they should pray for your healing until you tell them to stop. And I'm basing that on 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul has the thorn in the flesh, remember? And uh, he prays, God, please take it away. Hurts. Thorns hurt. He prays again. Please take it away. Doesn't happen. Please take it away. And God says, Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. I said, Matt, when God says that to you, you tell your people to stop. And until then, don't stop. That's what I'm saying. So ask God for for enough faith. I mean, in, in a group this size... I, Matt believes, I believe that there's such a thing as a gift of faith. Such a thing as a gift of miracles, gift of healings. These things exist. And some of you may have that gift for him. Don't badger him with it, okay? I mean, I, I got cancer one time and, and it wasn't nearly as serious as his. And, oh man, people come out of the woodwork with how you're supposed to get well. Don't, don't do that to him. He's surrounded by wise people who know how to counsel him. But love him like crazy in praying, God, take it away. Keep him on the planet, ministering with power, increasingly, greater humility, through his brokenness, as long as possible. Like 40 years is what we'd like, maybe. He's the age of one of my sons. That's one of the reasons I feel affection for him, I think. That's what I would pray for a son of mine. And and let me see, one or two other things before I stop. Um, Keep your eyes on the cross. You know, I've, I've talked for 45 minutes now about the big global picture of suffering. Whatever else you know about suffering or understand or don't understand about suffering, you know this. God in Christ took it on. Didn't he? God in Christ suffered more than you will ever suffer. The meaning of the cross 
The meaning of the lashes, the pulling of the beard, the spitting on his face, the spearing in the side, the laughter, the mockery. The meaning of all that was to say, you don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with your weaknesses. That's the point. He's right there, right there. So keep your eye square on the redemptive work of Christ for you on the cross. Because right there, sovereignty and suffering meet like nowhere else. And the last thing I would say, and this is very, very um, exciting to me. When, when God undertakes to do a great thing, he breaks people. Remember Gideon? He had 10,000 soldiers to go up against the enemy. And God said, too many. Too many. And he wheedled it down, whittled it down to 300. So your pastor's too healthy. Things are going too well here. I have a great work to do here. I'm going to use broken people. You. I'm going to use broken people. You've got a broken pastor now. He's a wounded pastor. We pray he gets well, but he's wounded. That's no accident. I will be praying for you that as remarkable as the growth of this church is and as remarkable as the faithfulness of this church seems to be at a distance, I will pray for you that through this and because of this spectacular impact for the glory of our great Christ will come. Come on this area, come around the world. Just keep yourself very humble in that or I'll have to break you again. Somebody else is going to have to be broken. Because that's the way God does it. A a wounded shepherd is the best shepherd. A wounded shepherd can't be uppity. He can't, you know, stride around and swagger and say, I get to sing under control here and we're building a great church. It's just over, right? And now that it's over, what an amazing thing God may be pleased to do. And pray with you as we close to that end, as, as I close and you worship. Father in heaven, I pray now that you'll touch Matt with a healing hand. Even at this moment as I ask it, just go in there and whatever remnants of this thing are still there, kill it. Grow his brain back with fullness. Keep his personality and his intellect whole, we pray, and uh, keep him humble. And then right through this church, Lord, for those who may be feeling resentful that Matt's getting all the attention and you're hurt, Hardly anybody knows. I pray that we'd love each other well in this church. That Matt wouldn't get all the attention. That everybody who's hurting would be cared for. Lord, don't let us waste what Matt is going through. May the church, those of us from outside, profit profoundly from what you are doing, even as we already have. Bless this church, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.